Once upon a time, there was this guy named the Buddha, and he had just fully awakened. So a new, fully awakened Buddha. And he decided, you know, I'm going to go hang out underneath a banyan tree on the bank of the Naranjara River. And as he was hanging out on the bank underneath the tree, this reflection arose in his mind, this thought arose in his mind. So I just want to point out, as a side note here, if you're still hoping your mind's going to completely stop thinking after full awakening, look, it's happening to the Buddha right after he gets fully awakened. So here's this thought. It comes into his, his heart, his mind. And the reflection that uh, arises is, oh, a person without reverence dwells in suffering. Oh, interesting. Oh, a person, one, one without reverence dwells in suffering. And then he takes some time to reflect on this. He goes through a whole process where you can hear how important and how essential, even after he's fully awakened, how important reverence is. And then he lands. It's like, ah, ah, yeah, I shall dwell. What I need to do is dwell with reverence for the Dhamma itself, for the Dharma itself. Isn't this interesting? Even after awakening, so important that the the heart has a, a quality of reverence. You know, this, you say, this profound respect filled with awe. And without it, one's just going to dwell in suffering. And another word that's intertwined with this quality for me is devotion. This is what I'd like to share with you some reflections about these, these important qualities on this path in this practice of reverence, of devotion. If we're looking to dwell with without suffering. And for me, these, these words, they're, they're kind of pointing to a whole realm of practice that uh, uh, to me has this emotional tone to it. So reverence and devotion, it's not coming from my intellect, but rather from my heart. It's heartfelt. It's about an emotional connection, a felt sense connection. And there are a whole host of words in Pali that uh, seem to circle around this realm of a heartfelt connection, a heart, uh, an emotional connection to the, the Dharma. Some of you might know these words, whether it be the word puja or anuyoga or sadha, you know, the quality of faith, confidence, atapi, ardency, rata, a quality of delight, garava, also devotion. So there's this delight, heartfelt ardor, a, a commitment, a steady confidence, a, a reverence, a deference. 
And one of the reasons I wanted to share this with you is that sometimes for me on long retreat, it's like with all of these lists and techniques that the teachers keep on talking about, do this, do that. And even when there's taught like the sense of don't do anything, just relax, be easeful. I don't know if you've noticed, it can start to feel dry, mechanical, rigid. It, it feels like it loses its juice. There's, there's, there's no longer the heartfulness there. This, this is sometimes what can happen for me. I don't know if some of you can relate to this, where you hit kind of the, the desert of practice. And what I find is that it's these qualities of what I'm using these two words to center around, around my, my devotion and reverence, or in other words, my heartfelt love of this path and practice that, that ensures that it doesn't end up feeling so dry and mechanistic. It's more heart-centered. So how to get a sense of devotion and reverence, what, what they might feel like within this practice and on this retreat. And so I, I want to share with you just a few flavors of this realm that might give, a, give us a sense of why the Buddha realizes that without them, one dwells in suffering. And I want to be clear, for me in this realm, there, there are so many dimensions, and, and I just want to point out just a few. And it's a, for me, it's, it's a tough place to describe because it's the place where I, I find that I'm sensing something into my heart and then I'm searching for the word and it can be difficult to find the word or the words. And one of the words that sometimes uh, gets evoked in this realm for me is, is not a word that I find in Buddhism and yet it evokes something. And that's the word sacred. It's like I touch the sacred quality of the Dharma. Ajahn Suchito, uh, I've heard sometimes has used this word, like for example, in one context, he's, he talks about sacred cosmos as if it's a word that he wants to use for the, the Dharma, this path and practice. And so this is what he says about this sacred quality, the sacred cosmos, just another word for dharma, but that might evoke something different. He says, yes, there's a domain we can evoke and enter. No visa required, no security checks. And as it supports us, we support it. From its innumerable and mysterious causes and conditions, benevolent influences that have come into my life just if they have guided the lives of others. And so awareness must be extended beyond me, it must be extended behind, beyond time and incident into the domain of love and integrity and self-surrender. That is the source of our lived-in truth. So what I hear him saying, instead of having the sense of, oh, here I come to IMS and I practice the Dharma, that's one way of understanding 
what happens when we come here? I come here and then I practice the Dharma. Instead, I enter into this sacred space of the Dharma, this field of the Dharma, into this domain of the Dharma, the domain of the sacred. And then practice works through me and in me as I engage in this retreat. And that field of the Dharma supports me and I support it through practice. Can you feel the small shift from, okay, I'm going to come here and do my practice. (laughs) You can hear my biases. (laughs) Something different can get evoked, at least in my heart, when I'm entering into something larger than me. And, and I love that he says, this is beyond incident, or you could say, this is beyond whatever the experience is. So if you hear it, you're navigating fear or confusion or self-hatred or deep samadhi or strong mindfulness. All of it's within the field, the domain of the Dharma. It doesn't lie outside it. It's in the domain of the sacred. Whether it's a good day or a bad day or a wonderful day or a horrible day or being a crappy practitioner or a good practitioner. It's like the the heart is resting or you could say being held by a place that feels larger, vaster than all of these experiences that arise and pass away as I engage in these practices. It reminds me, some of you might remember when Bonte was talking about sleeping and he, he said something I found uh, quite striking. He said, you know, when I go to sleep, you know, if I, if I die, what I want is my, the last thought to be um, uh, uh, the sense of homage to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. Oh, that's where I want to rest. Something bigger to, to hold me. Because when I still have this notion that I need to do the practice, I need to get through this, I need to achieve it, I can get so tired and exhausted. And it feels different where I'm doing the same exact practice that all of you are doing, but it's like I'm resting into it. I'm allowing it to hold me, to nourish me. Same practice, but it feels different. It's really been so helpful for me to remind myself. Well, I'm not here to kind of just come to IMS and practice. I'm, I'm here to rest in this field of the Dhamma. And then the Dhamma supports me and I support it through practicing. And it's great because it, it messes with my sense of meanness. It disrupts it. Another sense that that comes for me around when I have a feeling sense of devotion or reverence, it, it it reminds me of a actually an image that's a it's an image carved in stone that has been dated to about the second century of the Common Era, and it was found in an area known as uh, Gandhara, which is basically a, a, a part of present day Pakistan, and the 
image is of the Buddha to uh, the Buddha to be on a horse that he's riding, and he's riding it to leave the palace. So he's beginning his journey of this path of the Dharma to begin this journey on the along the path of the awakening. And underneath each of the horse's feet, there there are these celestial beings supporting the Buddha and the horse, carrying them along the path. I love it. The feeling of being supported, carried along the path. I'm doing it. I'm here to be carried along. I need to do my part. But just being carried along. And it can feel like, and remember, I'm I'm speaking more poetically. It's like, how does my heart get a feeling sense of this? Because for me, the the image resonates because it feels like I'm being carried by something that's unseen, that maybe we could even call sacred. And that unseen quality for me is this devotion, this reverence. It's my love for the Dharma. And as the Buddha said, I need reverence and devotion to something. And for him, it was the Dharma itself. And I think this is important to allow this to come alive for you. The particular Dharma that fits and resonates with your particular expression of this path and this practice. So not about some devotion to a person or a school of Buddhism or a sect. What's there for you? What, What is the particular way that the Dharma resonates for your heart. And I also want to acknowledge sometimes, you know, there can be these such ingrained beliefs, and I know that I've had to struggle through them, of I'm such a crappy practitioner that I don't belong to the Dharma. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really making it. Or I'm not enough. I'm not worthy of that. They're just beliefs. They're just thoughts. Can you feel your birthright? Your birthright to rest in the Dharma, to belong to the Dharma. John O'Donoghue, I think, uh, brings in an important component into what I'm speaking about when he says, Our bodies know that they belong. It's our minds that make our lives so homeless. This is what I'm talking about, like to feel into my connection and and devotion and reverence really through the body, not through my mind. I can't think my way through this. It's even hard to find the words for it. You know, they're, they're in this other realm, this poetic realm. And hopefully you can hear, this is not about worshiping a person or some blind faith or blind devotion. 
It's a devotion and reverence that's based on wisdom. So there's a, an, another now, another quality that I want to share about for me around this reverence and devotion. And it's this feeling sense that uh, it ties me, it binds me to the Dharma. There's a, a word that's used in interesting ways in, uh, in the Pali Canon, on, on a yoga, literally to, to further tie together, or bind together or to yoke together. And there's a poem that expresses the potency and power of being bound, be tied together to something that I'd like to share with you. It's by the poet uh, Jane Hirschfield. Diana shared a poem of hers a few nights ago. And the name of the poem is For What Binds Us. There are names for what binds us, strong forces, weak forces. Look around, you can see them. The skin that forms in a half-empty cup, nails rusting into the places they join, joints dovetailed on their own weight. The way things stay so solidly wherever they've been set down, and gravity, scientists say, is weak. And see how flesh grows back across a wound with a great vehemence, more strong than the simple untested surface before. There's a name for it on horses when it comes back darker and raised. Proud flesh as all flesh is proud of its wounds, wears them as honors given out after battle, small triumphs pinned to the chest. And when two people have loved each other, see how it is like a scar between their bodies, Star stronger, darker, and proud how the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can tear. Maybe this is really what practice is all about, just this. It's about making that scar between your body and the body of the Dharma. That's it. To allow that to form that scar from all those wounds that you're learning to navigate, from the very subtle ones to the not so subtle wounds. And the scar that merges out of those broken places when you bring your practice to them. And I love her words, that scar, that connection, that binding together, it becomes stronger and darker and proud. 
and how it makes of us and the Dharma into a single fabric that can't be torn. Maybe this is what's most important about this long retreat. To to learn how to be devoted to this path and practice, to have reverence for it, to be bound with it. Or to refer back to a previous talk, not just falling in love with the Dharma, but to be able to love the Dharma. To love it in a way that I'm bound together into a single fabric that can't be torn. Maybe you've noticed how the mind, right, it can be either secretly or not so secretly framing the retreat and aiming for some experience, whether it's deep samadhi or peace or deep letting go, even this notion stream entry, wanting the deep healing, the deep purification experience. And yeah, maybe there's a skillful way of engaging in this. I'm not trying to discard that wholeheartedly. But, but it feels different if, if I have this vision of to learn to deeply love the Dharma, to be completely bound to it. It's like it shifts how I'm engaging in this practice day after day on retreat. Because I, f- I feel like when I'm rooted in that, again, it, it doesn't matter if it's a bad day or a good day or the ups and downs. I'm just happy to be practicing. I'm happy to be bound to the path and the practice because it feels so good. And I, I feel like it, it also clarifies once again a way to hold the practice, which I find so important at this part of the retreat. That when I'm in in love with the Dharma, I'm really clear about my duty to the Dharma. What's my duty to the Dharma in terms of being a yogi? I mentioned this in my first talk. It's just to plant seeds. It's just one drop of a time into the clay pot. Drop by drop is the water jug filled. You're here just to plant the seeds. That's it. And you might remember, I I shared with you these few sentences about seeds from that book, Lab Girl, to remind you. A, A seed knows how to wait. Most seeds wait for at least a year before starting to grow. A cherry seed can wait for a hundred years with no problem. When you go into a forest, you probably don't tend to look up at the plants that have grown so much taller than you ever could. You probably don't look down where just beneath your single footprint sit hundreds of seeds, each one alive and waiting. When you're in the forest, for every tree that you see, there are at least a hundred more trees waiting in the soil, alive and fervently wishing to be 
After scientists broke open the coat of a lotus seed and coddled the embryo into growth, they kept the empty husk. And when they carbon radiocarbon dated this discarded outer shell, they discovered that their seedling had been waiting for them within a peat bog in China for no less than 2,000 years. Your job is just to plant the seeds. Who, who knows when they're going to grow? Because maybe you've had that feeling, what am I getting out of this retreat? What am I not going to get out of this retreat? Man, it's almost over. But that's not in my job description as a yogi. I'm just here to plant seeds. They're going to grow when they grow. Sometimes it feels like years after a long retreat that it's like, oh, here, this one's budding. Please, this week, don't dig up the seeds. (laughs) Just plant them. It's bad news. So how to engage in cultivating this quality of devotion and reverence that I'm attempting to point to. For some of you, it's just going to be continuing with the practice. Practicing with whatever arises with a sense of steadiness and easefulness. The Buddha sees this as a kind of devotion. For example, in the Anapanasati Sutta, he's describing kind of all different kinds of practitioners in the Sangha before him. And there's one group of practitioners and their devotion, their anoyoga, what they're bound to, committed to, are the four satipatthanas. Uh, This is what I'm devoted to. So a sense of devotion just to the practice here. There are other things, though, too. Like one thing that has been so helpful for me is bowing. And I really want to point out, for some people, bowing really resonates, and for other people, it doesn't. And yet I want to give voice to it because it can feel so um, uncomfortable to kind of give it its place on this path. Because for me, it has been so powerful. It might not be for you, but I want to open up that door. And I think one question that I think is a powerful question that can be evoked around this is, what are you willing to bow down to? What are you willing to honor? And it's true for, you know, for many folks like me being conditioned by this world of modernism, it can feel like a kind of negative submission, like it's, there's a negativity to it. So uncomfortable, yeah. And yet it can be powerful in, in different ways. I remember one time that was quite poignant around this. It was when I was uh, uh, getting ordained in the Zen tradition. And I, I remember there's so much flurry around getting ready for the ceremony, the ordination ceremony. So many things to get taken care of. And I had to look over the whole kind of ceremony of it. And there's all these different things of bowing and chanting and offering incense and 
the cool thing was, which was actually pretty rare for many of the monastics, is my parents were going to be there. Actually, my whole family was going to be there. And and there, especially in uh, Japanese Zen, there's this very central place for parents because there's this whole quality of ordination called shukke, which is to uh, uh, leaving the home. It's how how uh, uh, monasticism is, is situated. So it's a very uh, kind of family-oriented culture this way, deeply and, 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 and ancestrally. So I was supposed to... Uh, and I can't remember all the details. It's like I was supposed to bow, bow to the, do my bows at the altar, light some incense, go over to my parents, bow to them, then sit down and begin chanting. And so I had this in my mind, and then the ceremony began. And I remember walking slowly over to my parents, who were sitting in chairs. And, you know, here are these people that, and I want to say, you know, this can be a, complex arena around parents but but for me it's it just in that moment yeah they were imperfect people at times sometimes very imperfect and yet they fed me and they clothed me they gave me life right? they changed my diapers I probably pooped and peed all over them <laughs> and they stuck it out in my insane teenage years <laughs> which to me is pretty amazing so they weren't perfect and they nourished and loved me. And it was so poignant in this moment. So here I am slowly walking over to them in my hands in Anjali, something I'd never done even before my parents in any kind of way. And I remember then fully bowing down to them, my, my head touching the floor three inches from their feet and it was a Zen bow. So when you, uh, in, in the Zen tradition I was in, you touch your head to the floor and then you raise your hands in this kind of symbolic gesture of lifting the Buddha's feet over your head. So in this case, case lifting their feet above my head. This full-bodied reverence for my parents. shook me in a good way. And maybe you can get a taste of that. There was something powerful in the bow that I would have never learned in any other way. It's like, oh, this is reverence to honor. That was so important at that point in my life to feel aligned with that honoring and reverence. And for you, what are, what are you willing to bow down to? What are you willing to honor? And when I was a Zen monk, there was a lot of bowing. <laughs> I'm not doing a lot of that here. And prescribed places where you'd have to bow. And you know, there was a whole group of us um, practicing together over these years when I was doing that. And... Um, it, it was a hard time during that time. It's always like, there's always somebody I was pissed off at or I didn't like. It was like, like we live in a community like this, a bunch of young folks. Like, it's just like, and it was harsh and difficult. And 
And given your position, you have to often end up like bowing to the person again and again that you really hated. So here I am, you know. <laughs> it was so great. Like it, it made me get a sense of what, what's, what's there in them that's worthy to be bowed to. I loved to be forced in that way. It, it forced me in the corner that my heart was able to open to the point of like, yeah, I'm willing to bow to them. I think for me, I'm, I'm willing to bow down to almost everything. Everything is this act of honoring. Sometimes it's just an expression of opening to that which is more vast than this small, confined me. To put my head lower to feel the boundlessness and vastness of this world I live in. What are you willing to bow down to? It doesn't have to be physical, but just even for your heart to have reverence for. And maybe for me, sometimes I'm not necessarily bowing down to anything, but rather surrendering to this field of the Dharma. What's it for you? Barry Lopez, in his, uh, from his book, Arctic Dreams, he writes this passage I'm going to be sharing with you when he's up near the Bering Sea. So, you know, up in the Arctic area there. And the Bering Sea is um, part of the ocean that's between the far eastern edge of Siberia and Alaska. So he's in up there and he describes, he says, I looked out over the Bering Sea and brought my hands folded to the breast of my parka and bowed from the waist deeply toward the north. That great strait of water filled with life, the ice in the water. I held the bow, I held the bow to the pale sulfur sky at the northern rim of the earth. I held the bow until my back ached and my mind was emptied of its categories and designs, its plans and speculations. I bowed before the simple evidence of the moment in my life in a tangible place on the earth that was beautiful. Wow, to, to bow to beauty right, until my back ached to bow to beauty until the mind is emptied of its categories and designs, its plans and speculations. Whether it be the beauty of nature or the beauty of this path and practice as Diana was sharing with us a few nights ago. The beauty of these hearts. What are you willing to bow down to? One without reverence dwells in suffering. What are you devoted to?
I think another place that one can touch some of this is also in chanting, whether it's listening to chanting or chanting itself, the the utterance of chanting. And again, I want to share with you some words from Ajahn Suchito about this, this sense of devotion that comes with chanting. He says, first comes the gathering in the belly and the swell of the chest and the awakening of the throat. Then the soft cavity of the mouth shapes and sends the sound forth as the bones of the head resonate and the pulses in the skin tingle. This is embodied devotion. And then he talks about listening. The listening deepens, comes alive. Sounds, tones, and minds spread out within the heart field of benevolent causes and effects. That's where he uses this word also, the sacred cosmos. Embodied devotion to feel chanting through the body, to chant through the body, how it swells and undulates and tingles through the body. And it's an expression of reverence. There can be something so powerful around allowing chanting in in this way, just to, to feel it, to be moved by it. And I, I want to take some time to play a chant for you, just to, to end with this sense of taking some time to feel, maybe, being moved the way that Ajahn Chutito is pointing to. Or to maybe see if there might be your own tone of reverence or devotion that comes with, with this. So let me uh, set this up. So let me just take a, a moment here. Namo tas Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sam Buddhas Namo tas Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sam Buddhas Evang me sutang Ekang samayang bhagava kuru suviherati kamas dhammang nam kuru nang nigamu
ಏಕಾಯನು ಅಯಂ ಭಿಕ್ಕವೇ ಮಗ್ಗೋ ಸತ್ತಾನ ವಿಶುದ್ಧಿಯ ಶೋಕ ಪರಿದ್ವಾನ ಸಮತಿಕ್ಕಮಾಯ ದುಃಖದೋ ಮನಸ್ಸಾನ ಅಥಗಮಾಯ ನ್ಯಾಯಸ ಅಧಿಗಮಾಯ ನಿಬ್ಬಾನಸ್ ಸಚ್ಚಿಕಿರಿಯಾಯಿದಂ ಚತ್ತಾರೋ ಸತಿ ಪಠಾನ ಕಥಮೇ ಚತ್ತಾರೋ ಇದಿಕ್ಕವೇ ಭಿಕ್ಕು ಕಾಯೇ ಕಾಯಾನುಪಸಿ ವಿಹರತಿ ಆತಿ ಸಂಪಜಾನೋ ಸತಿಮಾ ವಿನಯ ಲೋಕೆ ಅಭಿಜಾದೋ ಮನಸ್ಸ ವೇದನಾಸು ವೇದನಾನುಪಸಿ ವಿಹರತಿ ಆತಿ ಸಂಪಜಾನೋ ಸತಿಮಾ ವಿನಯ ಲೋಕೆ ಅಭಿಜಾದೋ ಮನಸ್ಸ ಚಿತ್ತೇ ಚಿತ್ತಾನುಪಸಿ ವಿಹರತಿ ಆತಿ ಸಂಪಜಾನೋ ಸತಿಮಾ ವಿನಯ ಲೋಕೆ ಅಭಿಜಾದೋ ಮನಸ್ಸ ಧಮ್ಮೇಸು ಧಮ್ಮಾನುಪಸಿ ವಿಹರತಿ ಆತಿ ಸಂಪಜಾನೋ ಸತಿಮಾ ವಿನಯ ಲೋಕೆ ಅಭಿಜಾದೋ ಮನಸ್ಸ ಕಥಂಚ ಭಿಕ್ಕವೇ ಭಿಕ್ಕು ಕಾಯೇ ಕಾಯಾನುಪಸಿ ವಿಹರತಿ ಇಧಭಿಕ್ಕವೇ ಭಿಕ್ಕು ಅರಣ್ಯಗತೋ ವಾ ರುಖಮೂಲಗತೋ ವಾ ಶೂನ್ಯಾಗಾರಗತೋ ವಾ ನಿಷೀದತಿ ಪಲ್ಲಂಕಂಗಾಭುಜಿತ್ವಾ ಉಜುಂಕಾಯಂ ಪನಿಧಾಯ ಪರಿಮುಖಂ ಸತಿಂಪಠ್ಯಪೆತ್ವಾಸತಿ ಪಸ್ಸಾಮೀತಿ ಪಜಾನಾತಿ
maybe there was something in there for you. This was the uh, the chant of chanting the Satipatthana Sutta, the first for view, first few, for first few verses of the Satipatthana. So may we find a way to dwell in reverence and devotion that feels aligned with our heart in a way that we can practice for the benefit of ourselves, for others, and for the whole world. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit here for a moment. 